Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. In August 2021, the United States withdrew the last of its troops from Afghanistan, ending its military presence there after nearly 20 years. The US exit from the country resulted in the Taliban regaining control, leading to the undoing of two decades of effort that cost thousands of lives. I'm your host, James Patton Rogers, this is Warfare, and to mark two years since the chaotic withdrawal, I've invited Dr. Mike Martin back onto the podcast. Mike is a former British Army officer who served in Afghanistan, and a senior visiting fellow of war studies at King's College London. He's also the author of a new book, How to Fight a War. Between us, we investigate the failures in Afghanistan, we debate the current state of the country, and we talk about the larger international security implications of this seeming American and coalition failure to secure a lasting victory and peace in Afghanistan. Hi, Mike. Welcome back to Warfare. How are you doing? Hey, James. I'm good. How are you? Yeah, good. Currently in the midst of a move across the Atlantic over to the US, but... We needed to make time to focus in on this quite sad anniversary of two years since this chaotic American withdrawal from Afghanistan. Not just American, probably a bit unfair to pin it in. It is a coalition withdrawal, although the coalition partners weren't particularly happy about it at the time. But with all of this in mind, I thought it was important to to take stock and to look back at this conflict and also to see what's happened since that withdrawal back in 2021. But Mike, you served in Afghanistan as an officer in the British Army. So perhaps you can tell us a little bit about your time there and what the British Army sought to achieve during its time in Afghanistan. Yeah, so I spent two years in uh, Helmand, which was a province in the south next to Kandahar, which is a major city in the south. So I spoke Pushtu, I spoke fluent Pushtu, which was the local language. And I was a political officer. So my job was to understand what was going on and negotiate with people and to build coalitions and and basically to try and achieve what we wanted to achieve without fighting, right? Much easier to talk your way to some sort of consensus rather than to, to kill people, right? What was the British army trying to do in Afghanistan? That's a more complicated question because it actually changed. If you looked at the Brits and the Americans and others over the 20 years that they're in Afghanistan, they kept 
just slightly shifting what it was they were there for. So it would be, obviously, initially was to go in there to get the Taliban because they were hosting Al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda had just perpetrated 9-11 attacks in America. And then that shifted into a sort of state-building thing. And then it was about the promotion of democracy. And then it was about women's rights. And then it was counter-narcotics. And these goals would shift around. And they're all quite big goals, right? We're really talking about social engineering that's really let's not make any bones about it that's social engineering and that's quite a difficult thing to do in an incredibly poor country already by the time the coalition came and won the country had suffered from 23 years of war and civil war already by that point and then there's another 20 years of the conflict continuing and it's still at a lower level continuing and decades before that if not hundreds of years before that, you go back to the British engagements and the Soviet. Yeah, the Brits were in Helmand, right? Obviously, it wasn't called Helmand then. But the River Helmand, which is where the province takes its name from, the Brits were on the banks of the River Helmand a couple of times in the 1800s. The locals actually used to say several of the forts, they had these sort of massive earth mud-built forts in the desert at crossing points for wadis and stuff. And the locals used to say that these were built by the Brits. Not actually true, but very interesting that they saw that as part of their folklore that the Brits had been here in the 1800s and been hightailed out of there. There were all British forts still left around as well, weren't there, Mike? There's a lot of military infrastructure in and about, and also culturally. You look at some of the, the landes, the, the poems, the Pashtun poems, and you can see that they'd merely been transformed from being speaking about a, a British soldier 150 years before to being replaced with an American soldier or even a modern British soldier today. So the legacies of just really perpetual conflict in the country, apart from those heady years of the 60s and 70s when Afghanistan was on the, the hippie trail. And we always see those photos of this bustling metropolitan community. And then, of course, it's pretty heartbreaking to see it descend into what it did. But how were you treated in terms of being a, a British soldier? And also, pretty much, if you're in there with the language, in, engaging with those who are making policy and helping you to implement your policies on the ground. How were you received? It's not just us influencing them. They influenced us. We turned up and called our guard towers signers. And the locals completely understood what this word was. And we were like, oh, they've picked up some of our slang. But actually, it had entered British military slang in the 1800s for oh, guard towers. Okay. And we carried it through the British military as a word for a guard tower, a sanger. And it was actually an, an Afghan word. How was I treated? It was a bit of a curiosity, let's be honest. There were so few people who spoke fluent Pushtu. Even fewer of them were blonde 25-year-olds. Yeah, yeah. And again, I worked as an advisor for the British general out there, so I had access as well, which is what everyone's interested in, in a political war, political conflict like that. So I was always treated very courteously, not just for those reasons. Afghans are very hospitable, famously even to their enemies. I was always armed, right? And whether that was in uniform carrying a weapon, or if I was in civilian clothes, I'd always have a pistol on me. Because I had absolutely no doubt that many of the people that I spoke with, and we were able to build very successful relationships that were load-bearing and were able to get things done, but they would have killed me, I'm pretty sure, had they been given the opportunity. Because the, well, many Afghans, but particularly for the Helmandis in the South, 
because of our behavior in the 1800s, we used to burn villages down and execute the leaders in Helmand and all the rest of it. And, and they knew all these misdeeds, whereas we'd forgotten most of them. So I don't think, as far as they were concerned, we were just turning up for round three or round four of the sort of perpetual conflict. And so I don't think that they would have hesitated to have killed me had they been given the opportunity. But that that does not mean, that sounds like a crazy juxtaposition. How can you work with these people? How could they work with me? Or how could I work with them? Actually, we got lots of things done. And that's, how do you get things done? You find mutual interests. You try and look for win-wins. It's the same anywhere else, right? Nobody, the one thing we all agreed on is we didn't want conflict or we wanted to minimize conflict them especially right it's their home it's their village it's their field so where we could we tried to see if we could build coalitions come to accommodations and it was a pretty fascinating environment pretty difficult one to achieve success in but ultimately obviously as you've intimated it was all for nothing really do you feel that way because we had theo farrell on the podcast recently and we were talking about this his negotiations with the taliban and of course his recent book is literally called unwinnable So I think we can quite safely say that Theo is on the side here, that this war was unwinnable from an early stage. Perhaps when we turned towards this idea of nation building, instead of merely trying to remove al-Qaeda and the threat of al-Qaeda and and global terrorism from Afghanistan. When, When you were there, or perhaps as you were leaving, did you think there was any chance of success in Afghanistan? Yeah, I think I I know Theo very well. And I think he's right in that sense. The way we defined that war, it was unwinnable. We had these utopian goals of social engineering, as I called it. One society cannot change another. The change has to come from within that society, right? This is not rocket science. Had we defined the war in a different way, could we have won it? Yes, certainly. I think we could have done. So I think for those people who say, look, if we just stayed a bit longer and spent a bit more resources, we'd have won. No, I think that's incorrect. I think that's a misreading of Afghan society. It's a misreading of our involvement there. I think for me personally, I said, like I said, I spent two years there, spread over four years. And then previous to that, I was studying it and then post and learning the language and post that I was doing my PhD on Helm. And so overall, I probably spent about seven to 10 years deeply involved in Afghanistan. And obviously now I'm still, you know, talking to you about it and writing books about it. So I'm still following the story. And I got very heavily involved in the withdrawal in August two years ago that we're commemorating or commiserating, whichever now. But my involvement was really one I think of progressively the scales falling from my eyes. I think certainly before I went there, I you have no direct experience, right? And all you really can follow is the sort of official narratives, women's rights and drugs and all those things that I listed. And then I got there and thought, wow, this is not at all what I thought it should be like. I was actually, I was deeply unimpressed at the way that we were going about it. I felt that what we were doing was not linked up to those goals. Going on patrols and maybe getting into a firefight. And how does that link to these big things that we're trying to do? And because I spoke the language, I had this amazing insight into Helmandy society. And because I was working as an advisor to the general, I had a very good insight into the top level of what we were trying to do as well. And I could just see them completely discordant. And so progressively, as I spent my time there, the scales fell from my eyes and I ended up becoming pretty cynical. And that doesn't mean that I couldn't, with my position, improve stuff around the edges. We could make things better, that less people died, less Afghans died, less Brits dies. But ultimately, because the strategy wasn't going to change, it was always on a bit of a hiding to nothing. I did think that the Afghan government was going to stumble on for, I don't know, a year or six months. I guess my model in my head was... 
what the Soviet-backed government managed to do when the Soviets left. They lasted for three years. But I guess, <laughs> I think the structures the Soviets built were stronger. They, for instance, took thousands of Afghans to Russia and trained them. They invested much more in the human capital of Afghanistan than we did. I think we invested in the military capital of Afghanistan, but that's a castle built on sand. And I think they did much more political work. Like They invested much more in trying to bring tribes together and do that coalition building piece that I was doing at a very small level. I think they did that at a much bigger strategic level, which I think created the conditions for their government that they backed to last longer. Do you think the Trump and the Biden administration thought that the government would hold? Because when you look at those final weeks in Afghanistan, there there wasn't even the kind of the support on the ground for mechanics to make sure that there was any level of air power being maintained. There was no real transition taking place. This was a running for the gates and, and getting out of the country as quickly as as possible. Surely there was no intention or no thought that Afghanistan would hold. It's hard for me to imagine what it is that Trump thinks, because he and I think very differently on almost everything. But my suspicion is that he just didn't care. And he didn't have any knowledge of it either. Like he wasn't famously, he was not a details guy. And his campaign promise was going to come out of those wars. And who cares? Basically, I think was his view. And no one within the system was able to argue with sufficiently that the Perhaps with a smaller level of involvement, we could protect 20 years of American equity and investment, you know, two trillion, several thousand lives, etc. I don't know whether that argument was made within the American system, but it certainly wasn't listened to. And once the Americans had made that decision, the Allies had no choice because the Americans did the heavy lifting on logistics and Kazakh and all that kind of stuff, and no one else was willing to stay there beyond that. Ashraf Ghani was the president whose name you were searching for, was deeply flawed, right? He was deeply flawed as a president. And that didn't help matters. I think he didn't inspire much confidence, which probably meant the Americans withdrew even quicker. And then, of course, like when it comes to Biden, I think we have to remember that Biden was Obama's vice president and Obama was considering the surge. Biden's view was like, no, don't do this. Do a light footprint, counterterrorism thing, whatever. Basically, when Biden came to power, Trump had already signed the withdrawal agreement. And so Biden was like, well, yeah, this is what I said we should always have done in the first place. The pathway was always set. He didn't make the difficult decision, didn't need to make any difficult decisions. He just had to carry on what his predecessor had put in train. And it's fulfilled what he said we should have been doing 10 years ago anyway. For Biden, it was just like, take it on the chin. And then maybe, I think, definitely fed this narrative that the West was in retreat, and that probably fed into Putin's, for example, Putin's desire to, to go into Ukraine. You've completely preempted my next question, because let's go through these final chaotic scenes in Afghanistan, IEDs, suicide bombers. There are botched, time-sensitive drone attacks taking place, leading to the death of aid workers and a number of children. I think seven children were killed in that drone attack. And then, of course, the heartbreaking scenes of civilians clinging onto planes as they took off from Hamid Karzai International Airport. And all of it was chaos. And also the coalition was in chaos. You mentioned, were there people who were saying to Biden or to Trump, this isn't quite the way to do it? By the sounds of it, the coalition partners were exactly saying that. And so it looks like, as we move towards the end of 2021, it looks like you have a weak United States and a fragmented coalition partnership. And so then we move through to February 2022. And you've alluded to this already, but do you think historians will look back and think that's exactly one of the reasons, a contributing reason to why Putin thought now is the time to strike? We move to February 2022, just a few months 
down the road, we see that there's been this amassing of the Russian military on the border. There appears to be, once again, a fragmented coalition and NATO and a lack of US leadership. And so is Putin here striking while the iron is hot and taking his chance? Yes, basically. He went into Georgia, got a slap on the wrist. There was the red lines in Syria that Obama didn't enforce. Then he went into Syria. Before that, even then went into Crimea, there was a kind of slap on the wrist. I think there's a whole series of things that caused Putin to overreach in Ukraine, which is what he's done, right? That is overreach, plain and simple. And there's a bunch of other things, like the way that predominantly Britain and France, but also America, went into Libya, right? Libya was a functioning country, might not have been amicable to you know, on our side, but it got destroyed. Let's not make any bones about it. Libya is a hellhole now because of the fact that the Brits and the French predominantly removed the government. And in so doing, they overreached the UN mandate. They were given a UN mandate, which Russia abstained on or voted for, I can't remember which one, to protect the population of Benghazi, not to remove Gaddafi. They then went after Gaddafi and Putin thought, basically, you've broken the agreement that we had. And so when it came to trying to get some sort of agreement on Syria, Putin said, no, there's no agreement. You can't be trusted. I think there's a number of things, missteps by the West. And this is not in any way absolving Putin from leading effectively what was a genocidal war. And I don't believe at all this kind of like NATO has expanded far too east into Russian space in Eastern Europe. That's rubbish because all those countries want to join NATO. But I do think there have been a number of missteps in the handling of Russia that have led to the Ukraine war. Step back in time with me, Tristan Hughes, on the Ancients from History hit as we unearth Pompeii's buried secrets in a special mini-series. You'll discover what life was like in this town before the eruption of Vesuvius, the bustling streets, the roar of the gladiators, and the hidden lives of sex workers. Lost for over 1,500 years and then uncovered, Pompeii's saga continues. With the help of leading experts, We'll bust myths and reveal startling new research. So get ready for a dramatic journey through the echoes of the past. Experience Pompeii like never before on the Ancients from History hit. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. 
For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hasn't Libya been bizarrely overlooked in Western scholarship. You hardly hear about what's going on in Libya at the moment or for the last few years. And it's been raging with a second Libyan civil war. In many ways, uh, a kind of an eye-opener to what Ukraine could have been in terms of drones and has been in terms of drones. You've seen a drone proxy war. You've got Chinese drones supplied to the Emirati Alliance on one side. You've got Turkey on the other, supported in many ways by the United States. And then they've got their air defense systems on either side. You've got the government of National Accord, the UN-approved government on the one side, and then General Hafter's, Field Marshal Hafter's army on the other. And it's just descended into chaos. I didn't realize he promoted himself. He is a field marshal, yeah, absolutely. In the framing of a Rommel or a Monty. And do you know what's extraordinary about Libya? 2011 was when that intervention happened. And we just had... Iraq and Afghanistan and there's probably two lessons you can take from both of those wars which are timeless lessons but my god were they made plain in those wars and they are have a strategy and the second lesson is follow it through to the finish as they went into Libya it was clear that all they were going for was we'll get rid of Gaddafi and then we'll figure it out after that and everyone was saying if you do that this is what will happen and then this is what will happen Cameron has a lot to answer for on the British side. That is an unbelievable strategic folly, what happened in Libya. Cameron has a, an awful lot to answer for more broadly in terms of trying to ensure unity and stability. But when it does come to Libya, Medvedev, interestingly, is in charge at that point and chooses to abstain from that vote at the UN Security Council that then allows the implementation of the responsibility to protect the idea that if a nation state fails in its primary responsibility to protect its people, then it should be the responsibility of the international community to go in and protect those people. And so when Gaddafi makes that threat over the radio waves that he'll slaughter the people of Benghazi in their beds, that's when the West sees this as the time. But are we neglecting the broader Arab Spring at this point as well? The idea that if we perhaps get involved in these nations, spur some sort of unrest, then you'll have these seeds of democracy that will spread all across North Africa and the Middle East. This was the idea at this point. It was almost the, the height of this liberal push towards democratization. That's a big question, isn't it? And we've come a long way from <laughs> Afghanistan. But basically... Well, they're interlinked. Like you say, there's this idea of pushing for regime and social engineering. No, what it really did was it trashed the brand of the West further because effectively pre-Arab Spring, we'd been working with some kind of unsavory characters, work with a dictator because they can ensure stability, right? And then when it appeared that those dictators, the population might be throwing them off, we basically switched sides. Egypt's the classic example. 
and went on the side of the population. But again, we didn't really follow it through. Like in Egypt, we didn't really follow it through. The Muslim Brotherhood took control and then there was a counter coup and the military took back over. Again, the Arab Spring happened. There was this huge moment of indecision in the West. Oh no, what our entire foreign policy of the last 30 years is crumbling. Quick, what do we do? Switch sides. They did it half-heartedly, didn't follow through. And then you ended up with Syria is obviously a disaster. Libya is obviously a disaster. Tunisia is about the best of the bunch, but that's backsliding. Egypt went back to military rule. And all the way through this, everyone suddenly realizes, okay, actually, do you know what? America just go away. Enough. And now when we look at the Middle East, what do we see? The story's not written. This is the start of a new era. But China has brokered an agreement between Saudi Arabia and Iran. There's a conversation going on over Yemen. There's the Abraham Accords between UAE and Israel. There's all sorts of things that are breaking out that are... Okay, the Abraham Accords was obviously brokered by Trump or Trump was involved in that. But there's all sorts of things breaking out that are not nothing to do with the old Western idea of what the Middle East should look like. So I think there was a long series of events from the invasion of Iraq in 2003, right through to the Arab Spring and how the West responded to that, that completely effectively made everyone in the Middle East look at the Western powers, the three predominant ones, America, France and Britain, and go, okay, guys, enough, just go away. Like, you're not helping. And let's see how that all plays out, right? As we go through the energy transition, oil becomes less important, China becomes more important. Let's see how that all plays out. But that we're certainly at a tipping point in the Middle East. I think in many ways, we're already seeing it play out. If you look at who the victor is, if the West is the loser, Russia has sustained pretty well. Assad is still in power to the point where he's perhaps stronger than he's ever been in terms of consolidating his power in that country and rebuilding Syria. And then you look around the area with Libya, look south to Libya. What does it border? It borders Niger, this massive country, traditionally within the kind of protective domain of France due to the fact it has massive amounts of uranium that France needs. And of course, those long-standing colonial links. But now this is in major unrest and Mali the same. And when I was down in Naime doing my research there, it was all about the smuggling routes of weapons coming from Libya, this country in turmoil, small arms being moved down into the hands of terrorist groups. And of course, you have the dissipation of ISIS around the same time that are then fueling these conflicts that have been burning for years, but without that supercharge of weaponry to really make them more effective. So perhaps we're already seeing all of this play out and start to loosen the Western grip of the region. There's already these accusations that Wagner are in talks with these new military regimes that are in place. Effectively, what you have in the Sahel, which I think is a whole other podcast or podcast series on its own, is ecosystem collapse, basically is what's the underlying thing in that. The Sahel is the kind of band of countries to the south of the Sahara, from Mauritania across to Somalia. And you've got fast population growth, desertification, and then climate stress. Because it's constantly interior, it goes up twice the global average. So if the global average goes up two degrees, it goes up four degrees there. By 2050, their population is going to double. But it's just an absolute disaster. Couple that with weak governance. And this is the other side effect, right, of the Libyan war, is that we toppled Gaddafi and all of the weapons in Libya went to Mali and then caused the problems in Mali in 2013 and so on and so on as you've just the dominoes as you mentioned the other thing of course about Libya is it's the gateway to the Mediterranean so now you have Wagner who's become opportunists and stepped into that they've engineered coups in Burkina Faso Mali and now Niger those three countries are talking about coming together asking Wagner to protect them Wagner's already got 5,000 people in Libya and they're also in Car and Chad so they control a large part of the Sahel that's all the migrant flows all those countries 
countries or a migrant route to the Mediterranean from sub-Saharan Africa. And so Russia now controls the gateway. It can turn the taps on and off for migrants into Southern Europe. It's the major strategic threat that Russia, that Europe, and I include UK in that because we're in Europe geographically, it's the major strategic threat that's been totally underpriced by Europe. Now, of course, we should say that military coups are not uncommon in Niger. It's almost a part of its political process over the years since its independence countless coups and then transitions back to some level of democracy. So perhaps I don't quite share the view that maybe Russia has complete control yet, and I hope that's not the case, but I suppose time will tell, Mike, and we'll see exactly how much power Wagner has in the region. For $10 million, they took out a $200 million US drone base. Yes, they've grounded it. <laughs> they've grounded it, and it will be leaving the country. That's what the rumours are. And it's are. only just been bloody built when I was over there. And it was basically, that was surveillance for the whole of the Sahara, right? Well, same with the French base the as well. Base. The French only just started launching their drones from 2019. So it's, it's one to watch, certainly. But all of this, I think, does tie into the broader context of Afghanistan and this fraying of Western military power during this time. We don't want to sow the seeds of doom here and anything to do with a kind of a Western collapse. But it certainly shows that we're going through a transition time and there needs to be a kind of re-bolstering and reprioritizing. But you're right, we should go back and focus in on Afghanistan because the country is currently going through, especially for the women of Afghanistan, a truly terrible time. Could you bring us up to speed with what has happened since that withdrawal? Are there any of the, the Western long and hard fought victories left in the country? Not really, no. After the initial takeover, there were sort of several months because they didn't quite take all the country. There was a kind of splinter group that went up into the Panjshir Valley and then there was bickerings in the south. Although levels of security now are much, much better than they were during the 20 years than when the West were there, frankly, because they were stirring the pot and getting attacked by Afghans. There have been definitely gun battles in the case of Panjshir, little skirmishes down in the south. And then also what's happened is the Taliban have been going around and finding those people who worked with the government. Right? That's why so many Afghans have had to leave is because they literally had lists and they were going around and finding all the people who worked with the Americans or the Brits and been finding them and killing them, basically. So that definitely went on for the first few months. And it took the Taliban quite a long time to form a government and parcel out stuff, stuff being ministerial positions, partly because they are a coalition of different, effectively different commanders and their armies, right? The Taliban was a very decentralised structure and they then came together at the end to do this final push, but it took quite a lot of sitting down to work out who was going to have this ministry or that ministry and, and whatever. And that's why when the conflict ended, that all of the commanders rushed to Kabul with their militias because they realised that if they weren't in Kabul with their militias, they wouldn't have a seat at the sharing of the pie. ISI, the Pakistani intelligence service, intervened in that and hammered out an agreement which largely seems to have held. On the, on the women's rights, you mentioned, basically that's progressively steadily got worse rules about women in public spaces rules about women working so doctors and teachers then further decrees are not allowed to work for international organizations if you're an aid organization you now can't access women because you can only employ men under the taliban's rules men aren't allowed to interact with women who they're not related to so there's been a progressive closing down of the space for women and, and now effectively they are confined to the home education only primary school level that's obviously been a complete disaster 
And then I think when the Taliban came to power, they felt that they were going to have strong relationships in the region. Lots of people had supported the Taliban against the US and the Brits because they wanted to give them a bloody nose, so like China and all the rest of it. Now that the Taliban are in charge, no one wants to know, apart from Pakistan, so they've been relatively isolated. There's trade going on with Central Asia and stuff like that, but they're, they're really the kind of political support and stuff that I think they're expecting from countries like China hasn't been forthcoming. One of the strongest narratives that maybe people didn't see coming was when the Taliban took control on Weibo, Weibo, the Chinese social media. Women are completely emancipated in China. Chinese women going, oh my God, what about all those Afghan women? China finds itself in a difficult position on that particular issue. That's interesting though, Mike. Do you see that there's a relationship then? Will there be some sort of a clocking onto this by the Taliban leadership that you know, if you want to have a country that grows and makes money and a, a viable economy, then it, like you said, it does have to change within. So will you see a kind of a loosening of these very quickly and strictly implemented rules on things like beauty salons, schools, universities, women can't go to public parks, the World Cup team don't seem to be able to play at the moment. Does any of this look like it's going to change in the future of Afghanistan? Or are we going to see an Afghanistan that just doubles down in terms of the Taliban control of its people? As times probably get harder and the economy shrinks, it's less about trying to open to the world and more just about trying to consolidate their power and keep people down. I think that... Firstly, I think the Taliban don't care, right? Yeah. They spent 20 years fighting for this and they've won. So they'll do what they want to do. Thank you very much. I mean, who are you guys to come in and lecture us? That's the first point. Second point is that, as I alluded to, they're managing quite a complicated coalition of different interest groups, different tribes, different people. But also, if you think about it this way, an 18-year-old Taliban fighter was born after 9-11. Yeah. Only ever been in a country at war and now they've joined the movement that's won the war right and they are the most radical right the talibs from the old taliban regime at least understand that you need to talk to the un and stuff these guys are like just kill them and there's a sort of continuing war going on between isis and the taliban right so in the east of the country we give them these labels but really what's going on is you've got a tribal dispute going on and they've just adopted these labels right and so isis and the taliban are still fighting a little mini war which keeps people radicalized keeps them fighting the us is now apparently working with the taliban to target isis so there you go there's a come up for the books keep that quiet don't tell the young radicals and because they're managing this difficult coalition there's nothing to gain by emancipating women because the most important thing is that they keep their coalition stable, right? And by doing things like moving line up progression, firstly, they don't want to do it. But even if they thought, oh, maybe we'll do it, we don't like it, but it will help us because we'll get some aid or something. That then destabilizes their own coalition because there are strong voices within their own coalition that are saying, don't do this. So it's much easier to appease those people, keep the coalition stable because of the fighting power that they bring. We have to view it like that. They're aiming for regime stability first, right? Because they know that Afghan regimes fall when they get factionalized. That's the history of Afghanistan, right? Regime comes to power, factionalizes, falls from power because it can't hold itself together. Right. And they, they read history. And so is the suppression of women's rights one of those things that unites them across the board? If they can keep doing this, then it's a popular policy for those who are it's in power. It's a stabilising factor, yeah. God, that's depressing. Look at it this way, right? There are a bunch who like believe in it like absolutely, right? It must be. And there's a bunch that are like, yeah, I think women's places in the home, but like, they want to go to uni. Okay, fine, they can go to uni, but I'm going to choose. There's obviously a spectrum of views within the Taliban, right? But... 
it's just much easier to toe the hardest line. And we see this. The, the Taliban are no different to any other political party anywhere, right? It's hard to hold the centre. Sometimes it's easy to cleave to the right. You're more ideologically pure. It's easier to hold your movement together, right? And we see this political parties all over the world. It's just human nature. And that's the way you hold on to power. It's hard to finish on a bright note about Afghanistan, not only because of the internal politics and the future of the country, but also in terms of how that withdrawal two years ago has very much destabilized international security and led to, in part at least, wars that continue to burn on around the world today. And I thank you so much, Mike, for coming on the podcast and to, first of all, putting up with me, taking you on a journey around all of those different conflicts and trying to tie those loose ends together. But I think it's just shown how important that withdrawal in Afghanistan really was and the legacies it has today. But Mike, if we want to keep learning about all of this, and we need, of course, to keep reading your work, tell us, where can we read your book? What is its title? And where can we follow you on Twitter? Because you are a prolific tweeter. Or is it X now? I'm not sure. Yeah. Uh, oh, God, is it? Oh, thank <laughs> you. Thank you, Elon Musk. Yeah, so you can follow me on Twitter at Threshed Thought. And my most recent book is called How to Fight a War. And this is literally that. It is a how-to guide, a how-to-fight a war for all those budding commanders-in-chief written in the second person to you as the commander-in-chief. And you can get that on Amazon or all good bookstores. There's various other books. I wrote one on Afghanistan to start with called An Intimate War and another one called Why We Fight, which is about the evolutionary psychology of warfare. Perfect, Mike. Thank you so much. You're always welcome on the Warfare Podcast. Thanks, James. Thanks for listening, but before you go, a reminder that you can now follow along online on Twitter at HistoryHitWW2, on Instagram at JamesRogersHistory, and on TikTok also at JamesRogersHistory. You can also subscribe to our free Warfare Wednesdays newsletter via the link in the show notes. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland 
further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.